Good morning. Well, over the course of the summer, we've been spending our time on most Sundays in the book of Psalms. And uh, we have seen that the Psalms have one thing in common, even if they are addressing uh, a variety of different subjects. Each of the Psalms point us to have a perspective of God in the midst of of whatever circumstances there are that are among us, whether it is a time of, of, uh, of crisis, whether it's a time of, of, uh, of threats, whether it's a time of sickness, or whether it's a time where one is seeking direction or wisdom. Uh, we see that in each case, as we've looked at this summer, that God is there and that God has the answer for whatever the need is. In fact, we began by looking at a couple of wisdom psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 19, that, uh, that help us see that God wants to give direction and guidance for our lives. We uh, looked last week at Psalm 62, which was a psalm that reminded us that God is a, is a refuge, that He is, that he is a, a present helper in a time of need, one who can provide peace. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 2, and it's, uh, it's a little different than the ones that we've looked at so far. And so it's, uh, it's, it's what is called a, a messianic psalm or a coronation psalm, as it speaks about, uh, about God as king, and uh, particularly as, as, uh, from a prophetic standpoint, as it speaks about His Son who would come to be the Messiah. And so uh, I, I, I think as we, as we begin today that it's good for us to be mindful of the fact that all of the psalms point us to Him. They are all reminders of His presence among us. And yet today's psalm is a little different, as it reminds us of His reign and of His rule. Even as we look around at a world that at times seems as if it's out of control, as if it just goes from chaos to chaos, from unrest to unrest, we as Christians can respond by turning to Psalm 2 and being mindful of the fact that things are not out of God's control, that He is still firmly seated on the throne, and that His plans will continue to be unfolded just as they have been prescribed in His Word. So I invite your attention this morning to Psalm 2 as we, uh, as we look at this coronation psalm, this messianic psalm. A psalm that Tim Keller said, you can see three parts that are communicated here. And that is that the world has been given a king, but the world has hated the king. But yet the world needs the king. So turn with me to Psalm 2 as we look at, uh, at a passage that reminds us of the reign of God this morning. We begin by looking at the first three verses, and we see that these verses describe a rebellion. And it begins in verse 1 by saying, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? It opens with a question. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So here as the psalm opens, it opens with a description of a revolution. It opens with words of rebellion against God. 
And so there is a, is a, a, a picture of what is happening in the world throughout the ages. You see it opens by saying, the nations are raging, the people are plotting. And I know that this psalm was written years ago. And yet throughout the ages, I think we've been able to see the kind of rebellion. In fact, just think about what has happened in the last week. Think about what has happened on the world stage in terms of chaos and conflict and disorder. And in, in some cases, open hostility to the things of God, to His Word or to His people. So much is happening. We've had yet another attack. Five of our own uh, members of the, of the uh, armed services were killed this week in Chattanooga, Tennessee. You've heard of this, I know. And yet another attack that was done in the name of religion, right? And I know that not every Muslim that lives in America believes the way that this man did. But we still know that, that this attack was done in the name of religion. I talked with a couple of Muslim families yesterday. And one of them I spoke to at, at great length. And, uh, and I know that, that, that not all would, would certainly be in favor of what happened. But we have to stop and see that it's part of the rage. It's part of the chaos. It's, it's part of the fight that is happening now. We still have a minister that is in prison in a nation that we just signed a nuclear treaty with this last week. Did you know that? With the nation of Iran. You know, these sweeping decisions and treaties have been made, and yet we have someone from America who is in prison in, their, in that country, again, because of religion and religious belief and his belief in the Christian gospel. And so that's the whole reason that he's there. And so we see the, 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 the conflict. I don't know if you've heard about the video that was uncovered this last week with Planned Parenthood. Have you read or heard any of that? Watch that video. So incredibly disturbing to see someone callously talking about the selling of organs and parts from a baby. It's amazing just to stop and to think about what all is happening in the world in which we live. The nations rage. The people plot. It begs the question, who are they rebelling against? And these are just some examples of rebellion against the Lord, against His Word, against the principles, or the morals, or the wisdom, or the gospel that is contained within the Word of God. Psalm 2 is a different psalm than the 23rd Psalm. Okay? So get ready. We're not, we're not talking about something like that today. They are complementary. They are both true. There are times that Psalm 23 or Psalm 62 or Psalm 84 are exactly those comforting psalms that we need for direction in a difficult time. Psalm 2 is one of those psalms that comes to us to give us clarity and, able to and gives us the ability to see what is unfolding in the world around us. And how can we, as people who hold to the Word of God, have assurance for what is still yet to come? Psalm 2 has a word for us today. The, the nations are raging. The people are plotting against 
the Lord and against His anointed. In fact, that's a key word here in Psalm 62. Your, your text may say the anointed or the anointed one. And you will re- recognize this Hebrew word that is spoken here in Psalm 2. Mashiach. Mashiach, which is the word in which we in English would say Messiah. The anointed one. The promised one. The one who would be the deliverer. Jesus Christ is prophesied here in Psalm 2. Now, of course, we can see examples of rebellion, not only in the statements that I shared just a few minutes ago, but we can see it throughout the ages. In fact, the ancient Greek philosopher Protagoras said it this way. He said, man is the measure of all things. Now, would we as Bible-believing Christians agree with a statement like that? No, of course not. Man isn't the measure of all things. But that's the, that's the seeping uh, thought that comes into play in so many of the uh, perspectives today. It's a view that holds that man is the ultimate standard by which all life is measured and judged. In the 1700s, there was a French writer and philosopher by the name of Voltaire. And there are so many quotes that you could give. And I read a number of them this last week in preparing and, uh, you know, he was, he was uh, primarily fighting against, in his time, the Catholic Church. Um, but in reality, he was fighting against the rule of God and the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ upon this earth when he made statements like this, within 100 years, the Bible and Christianity will be swept out of existence and pass into history. Well, we know that his... Prophecy was not true. The Bible did not sweep out of existence. In fact, a hundred years after he made that statement, the British Museum was paying uh, an extremely large sum of money, over $500,000 for an ancient manuscript of the Bible, which was highly treasured and cherished. But at the same time, I read that a copy of one of his books would go for about eight cents. And so there's just no comparison between the wisdom of man and the truth of God. I believe it's really an issue of submission. As we read through Psalm 2 and we see the rebellion that's there, it's really an issue of submission. Whether you're talking about someone like Voltaire or Protagoras or even if you want to get real specific and talk about Charles Darwin, it's really an issue of submission on whether or not we will, we will bow to, to one who is a creator God who has the rights of ownership over His creation. In fact, that's what the third verse is speaking of when it says, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Because in this type of thinking and writing and in these philosophies that exclude God and make man the measure of all things, those cords, those bonds of divine ownership are attempted to be broken. It's basically the idea, we don't want anyone else to tell us what to do. We'll chart our own way. We'll we'll state our own morals. We'll state our own principles. And that's why some of the things that I talked about a few minutes ago can be so readily accepted by many. Because it's done with, with, with the absence of a view of God. Josh McDowell wrote a book called A Ready Defense. And in that book, he quotes the first humanist manifesto 
that was drafted by leading secular humanists back in the 1930s. And uh, it's been expanded a couple times since that time. But listen to a part of the first two resolutions that they make because they absolutely take on religion from the very beginning. It says, We believe that traditional or authoritarian religions that place revelation, God, ritual, or creed above human needs and experience do a disservice to the human species. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. As non-theists, we begin with humans, not God, nature, not deity. So there's a clear distinction between many of these. Now I realize not all will state it quite so succinctly, right? May not say it with quite those same words, but if you, if you go back, you see that there are, there are plans and thoughts that, d- that do describe the rebellion against God's authority. Again, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. And throughout the ages, again, we see these examples. In fact, one of them uh, could, could, be, could be viewed back in the days of Moses as he was leading the people of Israel. What did we see happening there with, uh, with the Pharaoh? Again, against the plan of God. You can see it in the days of Jesus Christ with leaders such as Herod or Pilate. You can see it later in, in, uh, in, in the Roman emperor Diocletian who ordered that every Bible be burned because he thought that by destroying the Scriptures, he could destroy Christianity. Anyone caught with a Bible would be executed. Years later in the, the French Revolution, there was even one who scaled the spire at the, the uh, Notre Dame Cathedral to break the cross off the top and to, and to crush it into the pavement below in front of all the people. Again, making a statement against the Lord and against His authority. We see it over and over again. And yet as Christians, we can come and be reminded of Scriptures such as Isaiah 40, verse 8, which say, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Do we need comfort? Do we need assurance in a day like today? I believe we do. And I think about the young people that are, that are seated here in this service and will be seated here in the 11 o'clock service. And I think about what all they are inheriting and what all they are receiving in terms of a worldview, in terms of the, the world stage that is around us. And I hope and I pray that that we can bring them along and we can encourage them in the things of God, in the Word of God, that it can be the assurance for them. For they are the ones that will be standing on the truth in, in days that very likely will be coming even more and more evil and more and more against the things of God. Well, is God threatened by all of this? With the nations raging and the people plotting, is is God threatened? Is He worried? Does He think that He's going to be overthrown? Does He think that that His reign will be ending? I don't think so. Let's continue reading Psalm 2. And we're going to see His response. It may surprise you. Beginning in verse 4. It says, He who sits 
in the heavens laughs. Did you get that? He laughs. And I don't think this is a laugh of humor. Do you? Just in the context of reading the psalm, I don't think that he's laughing because there's something cute or funny happening. I think that there's a laugh here of just looking at the absurdity of what is happening to see people trying to usurp the authority of a sovereign king of kings. And he says that he laughs it off. It's not a threat to him. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So on earth you have the plotting, you have the chaos. You have it then, you have it, you had it then, you have it now. The chaos that ensues upon the world. Yet in heaven, there is a peaceful stability. There is a confident assurance that He is still reigning and ruling, and that He will unfold His plan. Again, you see it in verse 4. Again, it's, it's not the laugh of delight, but you see the Sovereign One looking down and seeing that there are threats being made, and yet the threats are absurd. Here's how James Montgomery Boyce explained it in his commentary. He said, this is what human attempts to throw off the rule of the sovereign God deserve. It is understandable that sinners should want to reject God's rule. Listen to this. Here's what he says. That is what sin is. A repudiation of God's rule in favor of one's own will. Is it okay for us to talk about sin for just a minute? We do need to. And I think sometimes that, you know, we, 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 we can recognize the sin that's out there a little easier, can't we? I mean, by human nature, I'd much rather talk about your sin than mine, right? <laughs> and I've, I've got enough we can talk about for a long, long time. But we begin as sinners. In fact, as long as we're on this earth, we will continue as sinners, Right? The difference is whether or not we will be forgiven sinners and whether we will have the, the assurance that, that God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ has been applied to us. So we, so we look at sin as, as those who have been affected by it, right? Who at times, whose lives have been wrecked by it. And so we, we look out in the world with a, with a gracious perspective. We look out with a, with a, with a compassion as those who... We ourselves having been affected by the ravages of sin and its destruction. Knowing that on this earth there is one who seeks to steal and kill and destroy. And so we look at this with compassion. And yet we also look at it with conviction. Because we, we know that we live in a day that has, that has sought to take the word sin right out of the vocabulary, right? Because to say that something is sin is to say that something is wrong. And we live in a day that, that really does not, does, does not uh, approve of making judgments like that. And yet the Word of God has made judgments because God Himself is a judge. 
And I know that, that, uh, that there are many that would say, well, can't we save the talks about sin and judgment or these verses like wrath and fury to another time? Do we have to, do we have to touch on those on a Sunday morning? And you know what the answer is, folks? Yes, we do. We do. Because this is the Word of God. And for people to cling to the good news and to the gospel of grace, for it to be something that that sets them free, they have to understand what it is that they're being set free from. And what we as sinners have been set free from and forgiven from. And so, yes, we have to look at these kinds of things. It would be incredibly unloving if we as a church decided that we would no longer talk about the wrath or fury of God. It would be unloving. Because it would be half a truth, right? And so we look at, at Psalms like this, and I know you're saying, well, well, Pastor, you could have picked Psalm 23 today. Well, maybe we'll take that on another Sunday, right? Because Psalm 23 is an important one. But isn't Psalm 2 one that also gives us clarity? Gives us an, an assurance of, of the fact that even in a day like today, with people against the authority of God, that, that we don't have to give up. That we don't have to to give in to the thoughts of the day. So yes, I believe that this laugh is a laugh of displeasure. But it's also a laugh that, that demonstrates that He is not threatened. Let's look at the third point. Let's look at the identity in verses 7 through 9. It says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. God the Son says that man's devices cannot change God's decrees. God the Son knows what God the Father has declared from the end, declared for the end as He speaks with confidence about His Son. Isn't it interesting to you that we're back in the Psalms, chapter 2, and we see the word Son capitalized. We see a prophecy of the Son. We see words that would be that would be referred to at least on three occasions in the New Testament. In fact, let's look at at, at three of these examples. Let's look over at Acts chapter 13. What I want us to see is how in New Testament times, Psalm 2 was referenced. And in every case, it was referenced to the life, the death, or the resurrection of, can you guess who? Jesus Christ. Acts 13, beginning in verse 32, speaking of the physical resurrection of Jesus, it says this, And we bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my Son, Today, I have begotten you. So even after the resurrection, there is a connection of Jesus being the anointed one, being the Messiah, as identified even back in the second psalm. 
Hebrews 5, speaking of Jesus Christ as priest. Hebrews 5, verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So again, a reference to Psalm 2, but here in the fifth chapter of the book of Hebrews, a statement about the priestly rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Also, in the first chapter of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 5, speaking of his reign, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Again, just clarity on who Christ is. The theologians would call this Christology, the the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Who is He? Who is He according to the Word of God? And He is here described as the Messiah, the Deliverer, or the Anointed One, the Promised One to deliver people from their sin. And throughout the New Testament, identified as the one who had been prophesied to come and be that Savior, to be the Lord. Or in these verses, even to see some of the offices that he held as as great high priest. What is a priest? A priest is one who stands between man and God, who represents humanity and deity, right? And who better than the God-man Jesus Christ to be that great high priest? We see him as priest. We see him as king, the one who will indeed rule. In fact, this, this whole uh, psalm is even talking about the possession that he will receive. Look again at verse 8. He said, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Do those words, do those phrases sound familiar to you? The ends of the earth, where else do we think of that? Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. You think about the ends of the earth. Jesus understood that that was part of, 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 of the gospel going forth, of Him receiving worshipers from every tribe and tongue and nation. It wasn't an idea that just was communicated there in the Great Commission. We see it all the way back in this Messianic coronation psalm. Harry Ironside, if you ever find anything by H.A. Ironside, you might enjoy reading it. Very bold uh, pastor. A lot of what he uh, preached was also written. And this is one of the things he said. He said, I've never come to a missionary meeting, but I feel as though there ought to be written right across the entire platform. And you know what verse he picked out? Psalm 2, verse 8. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. He goes on to say, It is the will of God that His Son should have a great heritage out of all the unbelieving world. Folks, do we believe that? Do we believe that Jesus Christ is worthy of that kind of heritage? Of that kind of worship? Of that kind of adoration? In one of the conversations I had yesterday, very, very sweet Muslim lady asked me, she said, Can you tell me, Pastor, what is the meaning of the word worship? Isn't that interesting? The word worship. Thinking about the adoration of Jesus Christ. A word that means worthy. Worthy-ship. Worth-ship. Worship. 
We agree. We believe that He is worthy. And when we see people that are, that are, that are caught in religions that are imitations, that are false, many of them around the world that even promote idolatry and ungodliness and, and all kinds of things, we, are, we are, are people with broken hearts knowing that they need to be set free. To be set free from those things. Our assignment is to carry the message of Jesus Christ to the nations. And we even see that coming right out of the second psalm. Now we have to be mindful of the fact that He is a Savior. That He is a Redeemer. He is one who forgives. But He is also one who will judge. Did you look at verse 9? We read it. Let's look at it again. It says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Let me make the distinction this way. Today, in the age of grace, Jesus is going to people whose lives are broken. And He is taking these broken pieces and He is putting things back together again. That's a beautiful picture of the gospel message at work. At work today. We've been recipients of that. We could stand and testify to the ways in which Jesus Christ has put our lives back together again. Couldn't we? That's what He's doing by His grace and by His mercy. But we know that that grace and that mercy and that time to respond is coming to an end. The Scriptures are very clear that that is a season. That is a time of grace. Today, His grace restores and builds up. But in the end, for those who don't receive the grace or the mercy, His wrath will tear down. His judgment will fall. The Lord Jesus Christ, the next time He comes back, will be very different than the first time He came. The first time He came as the Lamb of God. But when He comes the next time, He comes not as a lamb, but as a lion. A lion of the tribe of Judah. To take His rightful place on the throne as King of this universe. And I will tell you that there will be no principality, there will be no power, there will be no earthly authority that will be able to prevent Jesus Christ from reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's described in passages such as Revelation 19. It's a lengthy passage here, so I didn't put it on the screen for you. But just listen to the images here found in Revelation 19. Of course, this is John. John the disciple, John the apostle, getting a vision of the unveiling, the revelation. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, 
were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has written a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Folks, this is the description of, yes, the one who went to the cross. The one who has nail-pierced hands and feet. Who came to save, who came to redeem. The anointed one who came as Messiah. But who, according to Psalm 2, and according to Revelation 19, will return in a day in which He will judge the earth and those who have not followed And so we close this psalm with a beautiful invitation. So I hope I haven't lost you yet. Come back to me here for just a minute. Let's look at verses 10, 11, and 12. And let's see that there is an invitation to come to the Son while we have opportunity. Read these verses with me. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Do you see the words that are being used there? Words of warning, but yet words of opportunity. Words of invitation. Receive the King. Trust the King. It even even speaks about, about wisdom here. Be wise, verse 10. And it tells us when to, to come to Him. Do you see there that at the beginning of verse 10? When does it say to come? Now. Now is the day. Now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. And I want to use these words as a way today to invite you. Because there may be many, maybe there are some that are with us today that have not yet received Jesus Christ. To receive Him in the perspective of Lord and Savior, one who forgives of sin, and yet also is the Lord, the King who is in charge, who rules and reigns. This may be the day for you To do as the psalm says and have wisdom. And to to come unto the Lord. This this phrase, kiss the Son, may strike us a little strange because of the way we might view that in our culture today. Right? To give a kiss almost like a greeting. But do you know what the kiss was used in approaching the king back in a day like the day in which it was written? It would have been as if you were, you were kissing the hand or kissing the ring in an act of homage to the king. An act of submission. An act of saying, you are the authority. And as we rewind all the way back to the beginning of the psalm, what was the problem at the beginning? As the nations were raging and the people were plotting, what were they doing? They were living in rebellion to God and His Son. So here is an invitation to come, to come now, to give homage to the Son, recognizing who He is as described in Scripture, and come and receive His grace and mercy 
Well, we still have opportunity. That's the invitation. And maybe you've been sitting in a pew for for decades. Wouldn't be the first time that someone's sat in the pew or been a part of the church and all of a sudden understood maybe for the first time what it meant to bow one's heart in confession and repentance before the Son and receive the gift of eternal life and forgiveness by His grace and mercy. That's the invitation. And by responding to the invitation, we don't have to be worried about what the future holds because we know indeed that He holds the future, right? That it's in His, in his reign and in His rule, even as we see everything in the world seemingly coming apart. Have you enjoyed the little orchestra ensemble that has been playing for us on Sundays? It's wonderful to hear the, uh, the, uh, the instruments coming together and the melody that's brought and how it accentuates the worship of the Lord. Well, if you come early and maybe not as much here as if you go to a, to a symphony where, where people are, 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 are tuning instruments and getting ready, have you, have you heard kind of the, 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 the sounds that sometimes come before the performance? Do you know what I'm talking about? What would you call that? What, what word would, would that be? Okay. <laughs> And what are they doing? They're getting everything in tune, right? Is that right, Nathan? Getting things in tune, getting things ready, getting prepared. But then once the conductor stands in front and brings out the baton, what happens? The lights come up and all of a sudden things come together. And it's beautiful to see the harmony, to see everything come together in one purpose, right? Right? Well, can I tell you that there is a day coming that the conductor will stand in front of the nations and he will raise his baton, which is really a scepter, and he will bring order back to his creation, to these nations that are his inheritance. That day is coming. Right now we're living through what is the beginning, right? And we see the confusion, the chaos, and we see every person trying to do their own thing, tune their own thing, right? Think their own way. But that day, that day's coming to an end. And as believers who have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, we can have assurance that He has a day coming that is very different than the day that we're living through right now. A day in which He will wipe away every tear a day in which He will put down every revolt and revolution and rebellion, and there will be peace and harmony again in a time in which the Bible describes that the lion will lay down with the lamb. Would you bow with me as we pray? Lord Jesus, we thank You for a psalm that speaks of You, that speaks of Your authority and Your rule and Your reign your triumph and your glory. And we thank You that You are a sovereign King and that this world is not out of control. And so we come now asking for You to give us resolve to not cave into the thoughts of our day. To not be rattled by the seeming victories around us. But let us remember that the war has already been won at Calvary. 
And may, may we hope in that victory. And may that assurance fill this church and fill the lives that are in it today. And God, I pray that if there's any among us that have not yet trusted in You, God, would this be the day that You would draw them to Yourself, that this would be a day of salvation. We thank You that we've been able to worship and we continue to worship as we give back gifts of tithes and offerings today, as we continue to think of Your glory through song and through worship. We pray that you will continue to fill this place with your praise. For we pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.